This is Olivia Berkman and welcome to Balance Sheet. I'm throwing it back this week to an episode I recorded last June with Stephanie Mockler. Since we recorded this episode, Dr. Mockler completed her PhD and was promoted to practice leader of leadership development solutions. On a personal note, her son just went to prom and is graduating high school next month. Here's the episode. Stephanie Mockler is a leadership consultant, coach, and organizational psychologist. She's the founder of the Female Leaders Edge and also a TEDx and South by Southwest speaker. I spoke with Stephanie about allyship and how it differs from mentorship or sponsorship, topics I've worked hard to explore and educate myself on since I entered the workforce. I think this is a very actionable, useful conversation for both women and men, and I'm excited to share it with you. I do want to point out that this episode was recorded before the protests began around our country. And although we are talking about how men can be allies to women in this episode, it's clear that the subject of allyship is more important now than ever. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to Balance Sheet. Hi, Olivia. Uh, Thank you. Happy to be here. Look forward to the conversation with you today. Me too. How are you doing? Well, that's an interesting question these days, right? Uh, I would say, you know, by and large, I'm doing well considering everything that's going on. I'm I'm home with my family, have been for about a month and a half or so. I have a a teenager and a a partner that I live with. And then also uh, we have two dogs and, and cats as well. So we have a full house and uh, we're healthy and and I guess I would say uh, lucky and fortunate to be able to work from home. Mm-hmm. That's a lot to manage though. <laughs> it sure is. Yes, it is. It's a lot to manage. I know today we're going to focus a lot on this concept of allyship. So tell me why the topic is so important to you, apart from the fact that you're, of course, a woman. Yes. Uh, so I'll tell you a little bit of a story here because there's a there's a history behind this. Uh, I became really interested in the topic of gender and, and leadership when I was studying in graduate school. So I'm an organizational psychologist by training and education. And a lot of my research is focused on this topic. And uh, when I began practicing as a coach and a consultant, I work with a firm called Vantage. Uh, I started speaking more on this topic and, and coaching women and, and working directly with people who are impacted by, by some of these issues. And uh, I kept hearing that, you know, there's so many people that are focused in on this topic and trying to help and drive solutions. Women are certainly leaning in, uh, I would say more than ever. And yet uh, these problems are still persisting. Problems being that women are less less likely to get promoted into senior level leadership roles. Uh, There's a leaky pipeline issue where we just don't have strong pipelines of of diverse uh, talent. And I started to realize that we, part of the reason is that we're not including or bringing men into the conversation and, and the solutions as allies. And the reality is men still continue to hold the majority of, of leadership roles, senior leadership roles, especially where decisions are being made and policies are being decided upon. And if we don't include 
that group in the conversations about solutions, then I think progress will continue to stall. So at that point, I decided that I wanted to focus more on this concept of, of allyship and specifically addressing how uh, we can bring men in and, and encourage men to lean in as allies. What are some of the concerns and hesitancies that you hear from men when it comes to being an ally to the women that they work with or just the women in their lives? It's a fantastic question. And I hear a lot. One that comes up often is that um, men don't want to be perceived as thinking women need to be saved. So I hear a lot of men say, I don't want to be the white knight or I don't want to be perceived as the savior thinking I need to swoop in and, and help or support a, a woman. And it's a, you know, it's a valid concern and it's often followed up closely with, and I just don't know what it means to be an ally there's no playbook for this. What, what sorts of things should I be doing? You know, what, what's appropriate. Uh, so I think that there's, uh, two things. One is just the, you know, the, the desire to not want to be perceived in a certain way. And then second is not having the tools or the training or the resources to know even what it means to, to be an ally and, and what's appropriate versus what's not. That's interesting. I don't know that I ever thought of that before that for a man to help or act as a a mentor or a sponsor for a woman in his office that he might fear it would come across as patronizing. Mm -hmm. Maybe is that kind of what you're hearing? I never thought about that before. Yeah, it is. Um, So there's, I guess there's a distinction too, I would make between mentorship and sponsorship and allyship Mm -hmm. in part because when a man is mentoring or sponsoring a woman, it's often because the woman asked for that or ah. approached the conversation. It can be formal or informal. Sometimes there's formal mentoring or sponsoring programs as well, where people are paired up, but that's often a discussion and a dialogue. And there's some expectations that are set around what that relationship looks like. Right. Whereas allyship from my perspective, anyways, I would define it as much broader than that. Uh, an ally would be a, someone who would uh, speak up in a meeting when a woman's being consistently interrupted or uh, step in when they see some real you know, gender bias happening in a promotion decision, for example, if they're in a room behind the scenes. And, and that's an ally. And so part of it is that to be an ally, you know, you need to have sort of the courage to wade in into these messy conversations when you weren't asked and you, you know, there's no clear expectations. And I think that's part of what drives the, uh, some of that fear behind, well, you know, I don't want to be a a savior. I don't want to be patronizing or condescending, or I don't want to be perceived as uh, feeling like I'm superior and I can help this woman. Right. It's, um, what's referred to as benevolent sexism in the literature, this, uh, sort of, you know, behind the scenes, less overt form of sexism that often shows up as savior, you know, savior or white knight. Right. And I wonder if men are always even aware of those things that are happening enough to speak up about them. I think a lot of men probably would be willing, this is a huge generalization, but maybe a lot of men would be willing to speak up about those things, but they don't even know that the thing that's happening is putting women back or, or making the woman in the, in the situation feel as though she's less than, or her 
opinion isn't valued. So it has to start with education in some kind of way. Absolutely. Education and an awareness and conversation about what some of these uh, subtle behaviors are that do hold women back. And, and you're, you're absolutely right. Um, men are less inclined to notice these things because it's not personally relevant, right? Of course, as, as women, there's things we don't notice either that aren't personally relevant to us. So I think it's important to open up the conversation inclusively in that way as well, because I'm always, I'm always hesitant to say, well, you don't notice this, right? Because I want, I want to be, um, I want it to be a dialogue and I want to say, here's some suggestions about what you should be looking for in meeting behavior. For example, meeting behavior is an easy one to fall back on because there's so many things that happen in meetings that disadvantage women in particular. And when I speak with men, I often do hear them say, gosh, I didn't notice, you know, Olivia being interrupted because I was so concerned with thinking through what I was going to say next and making sure that I was showing up well, that I just, it wasn't part of my, you know, my purview. And so I think that's a really important, important point to make. And I'm glad you brought it up because it's a, it's something where we can, you know, acknowledge and recognize that this isn't intentional. It's simply just something that's not necessarily observed until someone tells you about it. What are some of the other bad meeting behaviors that you hear about a lot? One big one, in addition to being interrupted, is assuming that a woman in a meeting is always going to be the note taker or the organizer. This is what I would refer to as sort of the housework of the office, office housework, uh, where a woman is, you know, the one who's organizing, coordinating, probably scheduled the meeting, and then is also taking notes and responsible for meeting minutes. When a woman is in that specific role, it means that she's less able to be present for the conversation and actually contributing her thinking uh, because she's so busy taking notes and making sure she's capturing everyone else's thinking. So one recommendation that I provide is rotate that role. Every single person who's a part of a committee or a meeting or a task force should be responsible at one point or another to to take notes and be the one that's sort of coordinating those efforts. Uh, That then makes sure that roles are not equal, so to speak, but that there's a shared responsibility for being that person who's head down taking notes in a conversation. Another would be uh, not hearing a woman share an idea and then it resurfaces later on in the conversation, often by a man who maybe spoke louder and then it's recognized as that person's idea and not recognizing that somebody else originally brought that up. That happens more often uh, for women as well, that their ideas just aren't heard right away or um, you know, somebody reshares their idea and, and then it's the, the ownership over that is is taken away from them. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other subtle things that happen in the workplace or, or now that we're, you know, working remotely, some things that you think are happening between men and women, we know the obvious kind of more in your face, sexual harassment, um, talking down to somebody like we, we know about that, but what are some of the subtle Mm -hmm. things that happen that a man listening to this might not realize he's, you know, his behavior is, is not appropriate or is making a woman that he works with feel bad. (laughs) I'll just say. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting in the virtual context that we're in now, because I've seen some, uh, some pieces and and people speaking out and saying that this levels the playing field in a sense, Hmm. uh, 
because uh, we're all in the same boat, so to speak. And so um, there, there might be a leveling. I'm not sure that that's true. I'm, I'm paying attention to it though, to see, you know, what, what ultimately emerges there. But um, you know, in general, it, it has a lot to do with inclusion and, and who is, you know, invited to certain conversations or invited to be in certain spaces. So I'll give you an example that's for me, that happened for me personally. I was um, with some executives, all, all men, and, and we were having a meeting about their, their team and talking through some of their direct reports. And the first 15 to 20 minutes, everyone else in the room spent talking about football and sports and their teams. And um, that's not to say that women can't be interested in those things. Of course they can. Uh, but I personally don't watch football. It's not something that's uh, you know part of what I do. And the, the the fact that they were having the conversation wasn't the issue. The issue was they didn't notice that I was just sitting there with nothing to say, not, not included in the conversation for 15 or 20 minutes. And those parts of the conversation are often when relationships are built, connections are made, common ground is found. And so if you're not really paying attention to who's in the room and, and who's actually expressing interest and in, you know, being a part of that dialogue, then you can unintentionally leave women out of some of those really important relationship building opportunities. So in some ways it's the, um, the old boys club showing up today. Right. Uh, and I think it does happen in a virtual context as well. I've seen a lot of of people doing and and personally done this as well, virtual happy hours or getting together to, you know, to talk about certain things in order to maintain personal connection. And, uh, those same sorts of things can happen where women might be left out of really important, more informal conversations. Again, where decisions are being made often, right? If you, know you have common ground with someone and you see them as like you and you like to spend time with them, you might be more inclined to select them for a certain assignment or to uh, want them to be promoted. And that's something that men, I think, would would do well to be aware of some of those informal mechanisms. Yeah. I mean, those types of, you know, before we were living the way that we are now, it, it could have been golf. It could have been my husband is is part of like a draft video chat. I don't know, whatever. But you could tell from like, that's not something that I would have been invited to. Right. So. um, So, yeah, those kind of informal get togethers and groups. That's, as you said, where the relationships, these strong relationships are built. And that might be the that opportunity for the person to show that they have leadership potential. And unfortunately, yeah, I think women are often left out of those groups and activities. Yeah, it's interesting because it's also, if we think about what life was like uh, pre-COVID and and what it might be like at some point in the future, uh, some of those let's just call them networking events, I suppose, also happen outside of normal working hours. And uh, for women, if they're, if, you know, they're responsible for the the caregiving or household duties, or they have other, you know, family uh, responsibilities, it's often, you know, assumed that anyone can make a 7am coffee chat or a 
you know, 6 p.m. Uh, happy hour networking event. And, and that's just really not the case. So another recommendation I've had and seen be pretty successful is ho- hold these sorts of events during the day, right? Have a, a networking lunch or if you're going to do a happy hour, do it earlier so that it's the, the timing is just more accessible to, to everyone, women included. Uh, so there's, you know, small structural things that can be done as well to make sure that these spaces are, you know, more inclusive for everyone. That's great advice. And that leads me to another question that I have, which is, um, we are, you know, most of us are working from home and I wanted to know if you thought that this extended period of remote work will have any effect on the advancement of women, because I think a concern that I have is that now that we're all home, women are going to be taking on more of the household and child responsibilities which will mean taking a step back from their jobs and their husbands will occupy the home office or just be able to really focus more on their jobs. So I I, mm-hmm. I, I wonder what you think about that. It's a critical issue to address right now. Um, in the past, again, just pre-COVID, women were still much more likely to hold the majority of household and caregiving responsibilities, even in dual earner couples where uh, both, uh, you know, both people were working full time, women still were holding, you know, over 50% of those, those duties at home. And I think now that's being exacerbated in a sense, uh, because women are now homeschooling for those who have children, you know, not, uh, not everyone has children, of course, but women are more inclined to, to take over some of those homeschooling responsibilities to um, have their children come to them and ask for things throughout the day rather than maybe going to, you know, to the father. And I think it's really critically important for couples to sit down and have conversation about this in terms of how are we going to share the responsibilities uh, that we now have that look different when we're all working from home. Um, conversation is, I think, critical across the board with any of these topics that we're really discussing, Olivia. But I think it's really important for that conversation to happen uh, so that the assumption isn't just that a, a woman in the household will will take on the, the majority of those responsibilities. Um, I think, you know, the, on the more positive side, I suppose, I have seen uh, men stepping up as well in this regard. So I'll share another story. I had a conversation with um, a leader that I've been working with for uh, over a year now, and I always see him in a a very formal sort of stuffy, to be honest, office space. That's where we meet. And we always are, you know, getting pretty quickly down to business. And we had a recent conversation over the phone where his daughter was with him because he's home, of course. And he said, my three-year-old is with me. I just wanted to let you know, I'm not going to apologize for it, but she's probably going to be talking to me the whole time. My wife is on other, you know, important calls. So just bear with me. And it was so refreshing, really impressive. Um, I I think the more that people in, in important leadership roles like that continue to role model those sorts of behaviors, the more it'll start to shape what's normal. Right. Right. Um, and now is a perfect time to do that because we're all in the same boat. We all have, you know, very different work from home situations and we're getting to see each other in, in different lights. And so I think if, if men and women can kind of recognize that and take advantage of that now, that could powerfully and positively shape 
the norms of, of how we work and, and who takes on what responsibilities in the future as well. Personally, I think for, for my husband and I, the conversation is ongoing. So, um, it was discussed at the beginning of all of this, like, how are we going to manage this? Cause as I told you earlier, I have a seven month old and, uh, for instance, right now he's, taking a nap in the room next door. And uh, I'm just praying that he doesn't wake up. But if he does, my husband is, you know, downstairs with the monitor and he's going to swoop in. Um, Yeah. But it's a it's a constant conversation for us. We're really every morning. Okay, what do you have on the agenda today? What are your big priorities? How can I help you manage your important calls? Or do you have a lull at any time where I might be able to not even just childcare, but just can I go out for a run? Can I, you know, get a little fresh air during a window of time where you don't have an important call or a deadline? So I think the conversation has to be refreshed, uh, especially, but I do feel grateful actually for this time in that way, because I am seeing my husband have this opportunity to be home with our son when normally he, you know, would be walking in the door 10 minutes before we put him down to sleep. And he is taking on a lot more of the uh, kind of daytime responsibilities, which is fun to see. And I, and I, I, I hope that that's happening for others, but I also know there are moments for him and I, where I feel as though, you know, we are maybe prioritizing his important calls or, his, you know, and, and I'm finding myself kind of going to back to what I know, which is to care for my son and focus on him and maybe put work on the back burner, which is tough. Of course, of course. It's it's interesting. I don't, I don't know if this is directly relevant, but it's coming to mind as I'm listening to you talk, Olivia, the uh, one of the recommendations I was making, again, pre COVID, I feel like I'm talking pre post COVID a lot <laughs> during COVID. It's, it's we all hard are. To ignore it. Yeah, it's really hard to ignore it. But um, one thing I have been talking about a lot is paternity leave and maternity leave. And there's a lot of research to suggest that when men are able to take that leave very early on in a child's life, immediately, they take on that role of caregiver much more seamlessly and are able to not only bond with their their baby or their child, but also just be you know a partner uh, in parenting when they're able to take that time earlier, you know, mm-hmm. and right away. And traditionally, we haven't seen a lot of men be even offered paternity leave. Right? That's sort of a a new new ish concept and. Can continues to be. Uh, but when, when women are the ones that, uh, take on that maternity leave, they immediately set themselves up as the primary caregiver. And that, that's not, you know, anyone's fault. It's just simply what, what's been traditionally offered by organizations. The assumption that a woman will take that leave and a man doesn't necessarily take it. Or sometimes a man might take it two months later, right? But then you've missed that really critical time early in a child's life to set up a really good partnership between uh, parents. And so uh, I think that's relevant here because now we're all seeing, you know, this again, everyone's home, right? And I think maybe it's a positive for men if they get to see all the responsibilities and caregiving duties that their their partner, you know, tends to take on. Uh, But moving forward, I think if we can continue to encourage men to take on uh, that, that paternity leave earlier rather than later, 
that will set a partnership team up for success moving forward. I think, yeah, that's a great point. For a lot of men, I think they tend to defer to their wives because of because of that maternity leave that you know the woman was able to take and bond and and kind of become that primary caregiver. And I hope that this time maybe gives men um, some confidence and ownership so that they can feel more confident to kind of make decisions without asking. Yes. You know, is this how we do this or what should I do if this occurs? Right. I, it it would be great for, for men to, to be able to use this time, as I said, take more ownership. Yes. So it's very interesting. Something kind of different uh, that I wanted to talk about, going a little more broadly, going beyond just gender differences. And we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I think a lot of us are afraid to ask each other questions when it comes to gender, gender identity, sexual preference, uh, race, socioeconomic background, because we don't want to be misinterpreted or come off as ignorant. Right. But I think those questions are really important to better understand each other and the challenges that we face. So how can we find out more about each other without using stereotyping language or offending? What are some of the techniques that we can use? Uh, So there's a couple of things I would, I would say, and there's, and there's, in some ways there's two two camps or two you know sort of sorts of theories when you think about solutions in this regard i've been recently seeing uh, a, a lot of conversation around you know setting really clear boundaries of what you ask someone else to teach you so for example if if i'm a man and i'm interested in learning about women's experiences at work, some people would say, well, open up the conversation, ask the question, ask to, to hear about women's experiences. And then others would say, in doing so, you're putting the emotional labor or the, the, the work that's to be done on the woman to share with you and educate you educate yourself first and then, you know, come back and have some conversation around it. And I think there's a middle ground here. I think one thing that's important is to create uh, psychologically safe spaces to have really messy, open dialogue about these topics, because the reality is they're complex, right? Um, any sort of, of bias, cognitive or otherwise, is deeply ingrained in us as humans. In fact, there's there's actually a you know a reason why we we stereotype and bias. It's because it helps us make sense of our world. There's actually positive mechanisms for this that have developed over time. Um, and and it becomes very detrimental when you don't question your own assumptions or you let you know yourself make decisions based on those biases or stereotypes. You can't actually stop yourself from stereotyping. It happens. You know that's just a natural thing that happens cognitively. The the important part is that you you question it, you stop it, and you explore it. And to I guess get back to your original question, I think that having spaces where these things can be openly discussed without fear of, of judgment or shame or blame is really critical. And 
one, one piece of research that I read recently would suggest that when men actually create those spaces or suggest that those spaces be created, the conversation that results might be more powerful, particularly in the context of better understanding women, because they're not going to directly benefit from it. And what I mean is when women create the spaces, it's like, well, of course you're creating this space. You, you want, you know, to, to advance yourself or you want to advance women. And so you're creating this space in order to do so when men say, you know, I'd like to better understand women's experiences. Let's create a resource group in our organization in order to come together and discuss some of these issues. The way that's perceived is different because it's not perceived as self-serving or doing something out of self-interest because you're truly looking to understand and you're curious and you want to help. Uh, so my, to take that back to a recommendation, then it would be for men who might be listening to this to be the ones that step up and say, this is something I'm interested in. I'd like to learn about this. Can we create a space where these sorts of conversations can happen? And I think that's a middle ground uh, when it comes to uh, how you can kind of get past that, that fear of saying something incorrect or stepping into a messy conversation. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the questions that we should be asking each other? How can we phrase questions? So I would say it can start pretty broad, which is simply tell me about your workplace experiences. What's it like to be you in this organization? And then that could be followed up with, you know, what, tell me about a time when you felt included in a conversation or in in some dialogue. Tell me about a time where you didn't feel included. You felt marginalized or you felt uncomfortable and like you didn't belong in a certain situation. Uh, I think getting to some of those real tangible examples really brings things to life for people. Uh, These conversations can sometimes feel theoretical, right? If you don't give real specific, tangible examples of of what this looks like and it helps uh, things click for people. So I think those three questions can be a really powerful way to get this conversation started. And then of course, you know, setting some, some real ground rules up front around how people will treat each other in that conversation. No shame, no blame, no defensiveness, right? Because that's going to immediately shut down any learning that might happen. Uh, That's really key as well. Yeah. So the last thing I want to ask you about, Stephanie, is um, a podcast that you are enjoying right now, something that you might recommend our our listeners to check out. It is hard for me to choose one because I'm a podcast junkie. I love listening to podcasts. so I'll give you two if that's okay. One is uh, Brene Brown's new podcast called Unlocking Us. Uh, Brene Brown is a social psychologist. Many would know her from her work on vulnerability and shame. And, and she has uh, many books around courageous leadership and, and daring to lead. And uh, she's been inviting uh, people to her podcast to talk about the work that they're doing, their experiences. Uh, she recently had Alicia Keys on, which was a great, uh, great conversation to listen to. And, and Glenn and Doyle who wrote a a book called Untamed, uh, which is oriented toward women. And then uh, HBR's uh, podcast, Women at Work, is another great one. Uh, It's, you know, really oriented toward women as the audience. But I think that listening to something like that can be a really powerful way for men to learn about how to become better allies or to learn about women's experiences. 
on their own time, because what that podcast does is often brings on women to talk about their experiences or talk about issues in this space. Uh, and you can just listen, right. And kind of get a sense of what women are talking about, what women are challenged with, and then, you know, naturally learn how you can help. Great. Those sound right up my alley. Stephanie, thank you so much for your time today. This was very, very enlightening. And I think it's going to be very useful, uh, for a lot of, a lot of the people listening. Thanks, Olivia. 